everyone, it's Britt, the Petite Polymath. Today I'm recording from my hammock on my back patio, and I'm going to be talking about Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. Okay, so bear with me, because I had um, like multiple pages that had pertinent things that I wanted to kind of read for, for everyone. Um, so I have my book balanced on my lap, like with a bunch of pages folded. So hopefully I'll be able to master not um, disrupting the quality of the recording um, while we talk about this book. So I, I'm pretty sure I've told people, I can't remember, but anyone who knows me who listens knows that I'm a neurologist. Um, and so the, you know, the purview of the mind and the brain um, are subjects that are near and dear to my heart and also, you know, what I do day in and day out. Um, I also majored in neuroscience as an undergrad, so I just love the interface of, of like consciousness and what it means to be a human and where, where what we um, sense with our bodies ends and like where things that are outside of our understanding begin. Uh, I'm also a Christian uh, and unlike lots of people who I think delve into scientific places, and actually I won't say that, not lots of people, unlike some people who seem to think that science is incongruent with faith, I feel that we, the further out we get from things we can understand, um, the more confirmatory it is to me to be completely at ease with not being able to answer questions or to be able to deal with the mystery of like our bodies and the world around us uh, and then on a bigger scale the universe and how things are connected. Uh, so I started taking this herbal medicine class um, back in September. It has been incredible. I'm loving it. Met some really interesting people and in the midst of this conversations have come up a lot about um, not just, you know, the kind of obvious medicinal uses of herbs, but also the uh, realm of um, psychotropics that, of course, grow, you know, on the, in the earth um, from either plants or mushrooms um, or even, like, secreted by other animals and these sorts of things. And so people have talked a lot about their experiences with... Um, psilocybin or mescaline or um, other psychedelics and you know I mean for a host of reasons one I'm a doctor you don't you know you want to keep your license and not go to jail <laughs> you don't do things that are against the law or at least you don't talk about them candidly I don't do these things for the record I'm also um, a control freak and a bit of a type a personality not to mention I already said that you know um, the religious world that I live in is judgy about alcohol and nicotine, so, um, and these are socially acceptable drugs. Um, so even more so, not keen on things that seem to be outside of the realm of, you know, being in your quote-unquote right mind. But what does that even mean, right? And so I've been thinking a lot about this, especially in, the, in this kind of post-opioid crisis land, um, and, you know, the the understanding that Big Pharma doesn't actually have the best interest of humanity at, 
at heart anyway, um, and how we've gotten further and further away from what we're made out of, which is the ground and being disconnected from these things, um, that there might be more to at least understanding that things that are, um, that have been maybe demonized, uh, have been demonized because they're not understood, more so than like the things in and of themselves are bad. And like anything else, people can abuse things. Humans are really good at finding things that are good and abusing them. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the thing itself is bad, right? It's more the motive and the use. So in comes How to Change Your Mind, which a, a classmate from my herbal medicine class recommended. I devoured the book. Um, but I would say someone who reads relatively fast, I, it took my time because I just, there were times where I was just kind of blown away by um, some of the, the ideas and the interface between spirituality and psychology and psychiatry and, um, you know, religious systems um, and, you know, more, I guess, like concrete science like physics, right, neuroanatomy, where all these things overlap um, and how just phenomenal it is. So Michael Pollan is a really great author for this. He's a bit arrogant um, and self I don't know, what's the word? He's definitely kind of self-involved. And he wants you to know that he's a staunch atheist and, you know, is scoffing at all things that are mystical. Uh, but I think even he's left with a bit of humility about the fact that there's things we just can't know or understand. And um, maybe we'll find language for it. Maybe we won't. As someone who believes in someone bigger than herself um, and believes that everything is interconnected, it's very easy for me to be comfortable with this, uh, with this mystery. So without further ado, um, the book is probably about shy of 420 something pages. And he goes through the history of psychedelics, how they were like taking off um, in study um, in the 30s and the 40s and, and even in the 50s and then when kind of LSD hit the social scene in the 60s in the wake of things like the Cultural Revolution, you know, we have civil rights and women's rights and the Vietnam War and, um, and how people attributed a lot of the drug use to this um, disregard for the way things had been, that it then was largely demonized, pushed underground, only to slowly begin to resurface in the last maybe 15 years. And so one thing that I found really interesting um, was that it's not just, you know, the chemicals that exist in naturally occurring substances, like psilocybin is, comes from a mushroom, but also um, I think it's Dr. Hoffman who discovers on accident, like he's working for a pharma company in Germany and happens upon LSD and being the good scientist that he is, uh, does an experiment on himself and has this like amazing experience that is then makes him think there's gotta be some um, therapeutic benefit to this, right? Um, and what's unifying about all of these substances, psilocybin, mescaline, ayahuasca, uh, DMT or the toad, um, LSD, I'm blanking on one right now. MDMA, or what we call ecstasy today, is that all of these things seem to do something uh, 
across the board to whoever take whoever happens to take it. Uh, this idea that what Freud calls the ego, or I guess what we would say is our conscious self, seems to dissolve, and there is this um, sense, overpowering sense of interconnectedness and unity in all things, which then proves to be almost helpful for people who are so kind of siloed in their own, uh, you know, in their own thoughts or in their own in themselves in a way that is damaging. Uh, whether that's because of depression or anxieties or addictions or obsessive compulsive behaviors, all these things that kind of turn someone inward and uh, cause them to forget about the ways that they are connected to other humans and then also to other things outside of themselves, whether it's like the greater cosmos or like, you know, the rocking chair on your back porch. And so, uh, everyone seems to have these almost mystical experiences. Not to mention that they're very rooted in the present. So the sense of time is suspended. Um, and then also there can be this conflation of, sen of sensory experiences where people experience synesthesia, which is when you like taste a smell and hear a, a tactile thing. So like senses kind of get confused. Um, or even um, a more intense focus on things that in our natural day-to-day -day we don't pay attention to. Like the way that the shine of a light hits on the petals of a flower and then how people can just be in, in awe of that. The sense of, of awe is what seems to be universal. Now each of these compounds has a different experience associated with it. You know, they're not all the same, but they all seem to impact people in these kind of general ways. And what's interesting is, is scientists have now, you know, with the, with the introduction of things like functional MRI and, um, and tech that allow us to see what's going on in the brain um, when someone's thinking about something, you see that, that, that areas of the brain seem to come on while other areas of the brain seem to turn off or become suppressed when people are experiencing these trips. And then after, afterwards, they seem to have a long-standing effect. And universally, from what i found, it's been for the good, where people have felt more love towards other people, more love towards themself, themselves, or more forgiveness or patience um, or acceptance of, of something that's happening. Um, I don't want to, you know, I could wax poetic about this for a long time, so I'm not going to, to do that. But... I, there are a few themes that I do kind of want to go through and a few quotes that strike me. Um, there's this idea that um, one of the scientists says, if you go deep enough or far out enough in consciousness, and you, you will bump into the sacred. It is not something we generate. It's something out there waiting to be discovered. And this reliably happens to non-believers as well as believers. I'm struck too by this, what they call ineffability, where people experience things that are so profound that they can't find language to describe it. And by trying to give words to the experience, it almost seems to um, make the experience trite. And I'm struck by that because as a, as a Christian, I don't know anyone else has experienced this in other religions or people who are believers um, in the Christian faith. When you try to describe God, 
you can use fancy like three syllable words but for some reason god is good encompasses like the weight of what you're actually trying to convey or god is love like it, these very simple things that seem trite love is everywhere we're all connected they sound like these like overly simplistic you know um phrases that don't really have any profundity to them you know these platitudes that you'd find in a card but at their truest sense they make your heart want to burst out of your chest because they're so true and you can use fancy words but the fancy words don't seem to capture the essence that this most simple language does and i just find that interesting that what people find in these experiences are also things we find in experiences of faith um, or in religion. And they talk about how, you know, atheists still will say, I feel like I was in the arms of God. And I don't even believe in a God, but I felt that because that was the only way I could describe the way I felt. You know, even if someone still doesn't believe at the end of it, which is, uh, is comical to me. Um, there was one part in the book where he talks about how someone was a mystic who didn't even need the drugs and that you can sometimes get to these same planes of consciousness through, you know, meditation, fasting, um, deep prayer, being in nature sometimes. Um, and so it's not just a drug, but a drug can sometimes help facilitate people to find, to find that place in their mind. And that some of these experiences have actually been the catalyst for shifts in the culture, whether it was in the 60s with the civil rights movement in Vietnam, um, or whether it was the tech boom in Silicon Valley. A lot of these computer scientists were using drugs, which then in those states, um, they were able to become more creative and came up with ideas that otherwise they maybe wouldn't have been able to access. And so that's another thing. There's this really awesome British um, scientist, Robin I for Carhart Harris, I think. Might be blanking on his last name. Uh, but he talks about this idea that the brain is a, and I know this to be true, is a predictability machine. We have too many things we have to do that we don't have the time to look at each thing individually. We create paradigms, and then if something fits in our paradigm, we file it away, which is why we end up with things like assumptions and biases and prejudices, because we don't come to every you know, experience with a completely bright, wide-eyed wonder of what is this going to be and what will the um, outcome be from this interaction, because it's just too much. So because we're making thousands of decisions all day long, our brain just files things away and we end up with these very rigid patterns. And that means a loss of entropy, which is helpful when you're trying to be productive and go about your day um, and be efficient. But it's not great when you're trying to create. And it's not great when you're trying to understand things outside of the box. And so maybe what these drugs do are they are a reset where they allow more entropy into the system where you're then able to be more creative and more flexible, more nimble. Uh, actually, this doctor did some work with a child psychologist 
who attributes the ability of children before the age of four and the way that they don't have these ideas as hardwired because the world is still novel to them, um, that their minds work the exact same way that an adult who is tripping on a psychedelic might, which just means that these little people are just kind of walking around functionally tripping because everything is so new and novel to them. Uh, I'm just struck by this because as a Christian, once again, and this is really important, like faith you just can't seem to walk away from when you're reading something like this, is the Gospels um, have a lot of references. Jesus speaks about having, um, being like a child to enter the kingdom of God, uh, and how if you don't have the posture of a child, that you can't. It's impossible to, to access the kingdom of heaven. And uh, Paul talks about being, a, being like a child when it comes to forgiveness uh, and love, um, but then to be wise as an adult. And so it's just really interesting how some of these experiences seem to um, validate uh, dogma, like religious dogma, even though I'm sure, like, you know, religious leaders aren't going to go tell people to go and try psychedelics. Um, one last interesting thing is where Poland is talking about the experience he has. I think it's on DMT, um, which is, I think, this maybe the scarier one, um, where people feel like they're about to die, and or that they have died. And he, he says here, Here words fail. In truth, there were no flames, no blast, no thermonuclear storm. I'm grasping at metaphor in the hope of forming some stable and shareable concept of what was unfolding in my mind. In the event, there was no coherent thought, just pure and terrible sensation. Only afterward did I wonder if this was the, what the mystics called the mysterium tremendum, the blinding, unendurable un mystery before which humans tremble in awe. Which, if you've read the Bible at all, and you read about the, um, the terrible day of the Lord you know, like the, at the end of the age, um, that it is a day where all humans look for places to run and, and hide, and there is no place to run and hide. And they realize how insignificant and small and frail they are before this all-powerful, all-consuming being, who also has other names for himself, like an all-consuming fire, or who in the Old Testament is a pillar of fire at night, or a cloud by day for the Israelites leaving Egypt, who speaks to Moses in a burning bush, who in the New Testament, um, the Holy Spirit, the other one of the other you know, members of the Trinity, um, descends on the followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost as tongues of fire. And like you just can't help but keep drawing all of these comparisons between these experiences and then these spiritual um, references. And I mean, you know, I, the morality of, like, should people be doing these things, right? Like, is it scary? Is it, is it dangerous? Does it open you up to, some, to something you can't get back from? Or is it this realm where people actually seem to meet someone that otherwise maybe they wouldn't have met? Is just the sort of thing that I could spend a lot of time thinking about. And so I highly recommend this book because I, if there's one thing I know, um, psychedelics 
and the possibilities of therapy or therapeutic uses for them for addiction and depression and anxiety and and you know obsessive compulsive disorder or eating disorders uh, I think we're just going to be seeing that this is going to start to take off um, in very interesting ways. Um, the world seems to be set for the reintroduction of these substances into the more mainstream world. So check out Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. I don't think I said that it wasn't just the history of psychedelics. He also actually um, lets you know about his experiences with each of the main psychedelics that I talked about. Uh, so for, a, you know, kind of a, a first-hand account, um, I think it was pretty interesting to kind of get that insight from someone who writes for a living. Um, at any rate, I hope everyone is hanging in there. I hope that you all have a wonderful holiday season strange though it might be. Uh, and I hope that you have a great weekend. I don't know what I'll be talking about next. I've got a few other books down the pipeline. Take care, everybody.